Good morning. My name is Bob Brown. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of Luke. We are in the third week of Advent sermon series. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 from the New American Standard Version. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Child, shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold the bondslave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Can you believe that it is the third Sunday of Advent already? Time is flying by. We just put our tree in the living room yesterday, but it has nothing on it yet. So I'm going to work on that at halftime today, I think. Well, I want to, um, our, our sermon this morning is titled, Mary Said Yes to the Impossible. Ooh, and the impossible has worked because technology is working for me today. My name's Julie Steele, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am really excited to share with you what God has really put on my heart the last few weeks here. But before we get started with our uh, scripture uh, sermon that Bob read for us so well, I would like you to finish a sentence for me. It wouldn't be Christmas without what? Everybody has their family traditions, things that they grew up with, things that you do to make it Christmas for you. So tell me what some of those things are. Lutefus. Lutefus. Oh, my. Okay. That's not in mine, but that's a tradition. <laughs> what are some other ones? What did you say? Oh, family. Being with family. Yes. More. Stockings. Oh, yes, you're the stocking queen, aren't you? You do all those stockings for the homeless kids. Other things. Snow. Well, we can pray about that. I would love to have some snow. Any more things? Cookies. Music. Jesus. 
Jesus is always the answer. Thank you. That's great. Wouldn't be Christmas without Jesus, that is for sure. Well, in the Steele family, some of the things that we have been doing over the years, uh, traditions that we have, one of them is we go and cut the tree. Now, this was obviously a really long time ago, but there has been a tree farm up in North Bend that we go to every year and we scope out everything. We have to find a noble, and it has to have kind of a blue tinge to it, so I'm a little picky about that. We find the tree. The kids cut it down, or now my husband cuts it down, and then we go get a really big cookie, and that's, that's our tradition for Christmas. We also have a few other things like you. We buy gifts. Um, we go see Santa. Aren't they cute? That was a long time ago. They're still cute, but just in a different way. We watch movies, and we just watched Buddy last night, so I don't know how many of you like Elf. Uh, We also make a lot of fudge. So fudge is a big thing in my family for Christmas, and I make tons of fudge, uh, and I have to say... I make the best fudge in the world. I don't do many things really well, but I can, yeah, I, but I can brag on that one. Uh, prove it to all of us. That's, yes. <laughs> if you're good, I'll prove it to you, okay? So fudge is such a big thing that when one of my sons was in Africa for two years, I had to get fudge to Burkina Faso in December, which was no small feat. And it wasn't cheap either, let me tell you. So we all have a lot of Christmas traditions that we've grown up with. And of course, we're talking about the first Christmas today, so there were no traditions to, uh, to celebrate at that particular point. But before we get to our text, our scripture that Bob read for us today, we're going to go back to the first uh, part of Luke, the first four verses, and I want to read these to you. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself, and I would be Luke, who is writing this, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty of the things you have been taught. I thought it was important to go back to the very beginning of Luke, where he opens up his gospel The reason is, I have a question for you. How many of you really believe the narrative of the Christmas story? That you really believe all of that is true and happened? And more specifically, how many of you really believe in the virgin birth? I just read a Christmas research poll this last week that had some interesting numbers to me. There was an age gap between those who believed in the virgin birth. 66% of those under the age of 30 believe in it. 76 over the age of 30 believe in it. And there were also differences in uh, cross-racial lines. Nine in 10 African Americans believe in the virgin birth. Eight in 10 Hispanics. And seven in 10 Caucasians. And there was also a bit of a difference in gender. More women than men believe in the virgin birth. I just thought that was really interesting to think about as we celebrate Christmas and celebrate 
Jesus' birth. Well, as the numbers of Jesus' followers grew and Christian groups sprang up in many places after Jesus' death, it soon became apparent that the stories and the teachings of Jesus needed to be recorded. They needed to be written down. So when Luke set out to investigate everything carefully from the beginning, he would have interviewed Mary as one of his eyewitnesses to the truth. So Luke wrote his account so that Theophilus, who was a high-ranking Roman official, and all of us would know and believe the truth about Jesus' birth. So who was Mary? I have three pictures of Mary here that are in my house. Uh, There's one, let's see, the one on the side here comes from a really cute little Fisher-Price nativity set I have for my grandnieces to play with that has lights and music and everything. It's a lot of fun. And then there's the Mary on the other end, the other side, which is this little Mary that I have that we purchased in an antique store right after we got married. And I just thought she was so sweet and dear. And we set her on our Christmas tree. But it wasn't till years later that we figured out that this comes off and there is this really beautiful rosary in here. So this is really special to us. And I've told the kids, you know, when I die, don't give it away. It's worth a lot. So anyway, that's one of those things. That's my little Mary. You have to tell your kids a lot of things as you get older, like, ah, it's my last chance. Anyway, so in the middle is the Mary that belongs in my actual nativity set. And it's a painted wooden set that I found a few years ago. And I had had a hard time finding a nativity set that I liked because a lot of them, the faces are weird or, you know, it just doesn't look right. But that's my favorite. So that's, that's my Mary uh, that I like the best. Well, you know, many of us Protestants have reacted against Mary so much that she has been sometimes pushed off the stage of our biblical characters unless it's Christmas. We have typically had this knee-jerk reaction to response to Catholic teachings and our Catholic brothers and sisters, and we minimize any admiration for Mary. We've gone very far the other direction. When I was growing up in northern Indiana, my mom was Lutheran, my dad was Catholic, and somehow when they got married, we were Lutherans. I'm not sure how dad lost out on that one, but anyway, we were Lutherans when we did go to church. So we didn't have a big church background. But I had all these cousins who were Catholic around me. I had 31st cousins living around me because, you know, big families, right? And I was so jealous of these cousins because they got to have first communion. And my cousin girls got to wear these pretty little white dresses with veils and have a party. And it was like this junior wedding that they got to have. And we had nothing. And then they got to stay up till midnight for midnight mass on Christmas Eve. And we were in bed at 8 o'clock. And, you know, Lutherans just didn't seem very fun anymore. And then they got to wear these really cool uniforms because, of course, they went to Catholic school and I just had to wear whatever was there. And they went to a school that was called Our Lady of Perpetual Help. And I went to Jefferson Elementary. It was just like something wrong here. So I was thinking I was really going to make the switch when I got older to be Catholic. 
Well, we've not only ignored Mary, but again, we have stereotyped her to be just another character, I think, in the Christmas story. Well, what do we know about Mary? Because we're going to look at what we know about her, you know, who she was and who she wasn't. She was a poor peasant girl living in an oppressed country. She was a teenager, probably around 15 or 16 years of age here. She had a sister named Saloma. She had a relative named Elizabeth that we also read about in Luke. And she was clearly a devout believer of God. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. And in Mary's world, from the moment of betrothal, not the moment of the ceremony, you were considered husband and wife. Mary would continue to live at home until the wedding ceremony, however. And that's why we read in the book of Matthew that when Joseph found out that Mary was going to have a baby, he would secretly divorce her because it was a legal contract already. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was described by God as highly favored. And the phrase highly favored comes from a single word in the Greek, which means much grace. And Mary did receive much grace from God. Mary was, however, a sinful human being who needed Jesus Christ as her Savior, just like we all do. Mary did not have an immaculate conception. The Bible does not say that her birth was anything other than a normal human birth. However, Mary was a virgin when she had Jesus. But the idea of perpetual virginity just is not biblical. Matthew, speaking of Joseph, declares he had no union with her until she had her son. So we have the word until here, which means until clearly indicates Joseph and Mary had normal uh, sexual relations after Jesus was born, and they even went on to have more children. Jesus had four brothers, James, who wrote the book of James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, not the Judas that betrayed him, although there may have been some brotherly rivalry going on there. He had half-sisters, but we don't know how many, and they're not named. God blessed and graced Mary by giving her more children, which in that society said that God favored you. Now, there is a real danger in making Mary some super saint. If we make too much of Mary, she's not chosen by God anymore. She's God-like. But Mary was an ordinary Jewish woman with an extraordinary vocation who would have struggled, as all Jews did, with who the Messiah was. However, we still need to see Mary as an amazing example of real faith, and we need to pay attention to her. Well, Mary is visited by an angel to tell her that she was going to conceive this child. And I got to thinking about when we found out we were having our first child and how we were going to tell everybody that uh, I was going to have a baby, which, by the way, I have a pet peeve about the phrase used today, we're pregnant. I was pregnant. My husband was never pregnant. (laughs) We were having a baby, but we were not pregnant. So when we were trying to tell our family that we were going to have a baby, we found out on Christmas Eve, the doctor's office called me, 
and the next day we were gonna go up to Bellingham and be with all of my family. And we didn't even know if we were gonna tell anybody at that point, because we were still kind of digesting that news. And so we're up in Bellingham, my family's all around, and my little four-and-a-half-year-old nephew, Brian, got a Mr. Microphone for Christmas. I don't know if you've ever heard of those, but it's an extremely obnoxious toy to give to a a four-and-a-half-year-old because they have the microphone. And so he proceeded to sing every Christmas song he knew for us, and by about song three of his repertoire, we all just started chatting and conversing and He was just background noise at that point. So I got this idea in my head that I didn't even tell my husband, and I leaned over to Brian, and I said, Brian, say Aunt Julie's going to have a baby. So he looks at me and doesn't really register, but he's going to say what I said. So he all of a sudden stops singing. He says, Aunt Julie's going to have a baby. And everybody's still chatting, and slowly people stop talking and turn, and pretty soon it's silent, and everybody's looking at me, and then there's the big scream, you know, ah. So that's how we told. We didn't have an angel to do that for us. Well, the angel Gabriel is the same angel who visited Zechariah and told him about John the Baptist. Uh, And Gabriel says three different things to Mary, and each time we see Mary respond to what could be the impossible, what wouldn't be the impossible. First, Gabriel greets Mary. He says, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, Mary doesn't audibly respond to this. Uh, As a matter of fact, we're told she was greatly troubled, and she wondered, what kind of greeting was this? However, and to me, she did respond by staying engaged with this angel. She didn't laugh. She didn't run away. She clearly had some belief that this angel was sent by God, or she wouldn't have stayed to hear the rest of the story. Second, Gabriel informs her that she has found favor with God, and she would bear a son who would be the long-awaited Messiah, and he would be called the Son of the Most High. Mary's response to this is really amazing to me. She only has one question. It's a technical matter that she needs to have cleared up. How can this be if I am a virgin? Interestingly enough, she doesn't doubt the angel's words that she will be the mother of the Messiah. She doesn't doubt... Uh, what's going to happen. She doesn't ask, why me, or what does all of this mean? She doesn't argue that being the mother of the Messiah is just not her spiritual gift, or that at this season of her life, this really isn't the right task for her. No, in essence, she says to Gabriel in asking this question, okay, I'm willing to do my part, but you need to explain how we're going to handle this problem. I think that is real faith. Faith that believes the impossible when the facts argue against it. Now third, Gabriel explains that what is about to happen to Mary is a direct divine intervention from God, that the Holy Spirit is the agent of the virgin birth. This same spirit that hovered over the waters back in the first chapter of Genesis at creation is the same spirit 
that's going to overshadow Mary so that she will conceive Jesus. Her response uh, to the angel saying that nothing is impossible with God, she seems to be fine with that. She doesn't ask any more questions. As a matter of fact, what she says is, be it done according to your word. Now, I tried to put myself in Mary's place. What if an angel visited me and gave me this kind of news? Would I respond the same way? May it be according to your word? Well, have you ever negotiated with God? I have. I will confess that right now. God will ask something of me, and I'll say, yeah, I could, I could do part of that, but how about if we do a little give and take here? See, this is what I think my response would have been had the angel said that to me. I would have asked if this whole overshadowing of the Holy Spirit thing could have been timed so that it happened like the day before my wedding day, and then I wouldn't have to suffer the humiliation of being pregnant out of wedlock, and I wouldn't have to tell my fiancé, because none the wiser, he would just think it was his. I mean, I'll still be doing what you're asking me to do, but can we just change it a little bit so that I don't have to pay the price? I think that's what I probably would have done. As a teenager, yes, I was a teenager at one time, my girlfriends and I would talk about this scenario sometimes. What if there's some other way to get pregnant that nobody knows about, and it happens to us, and then nobody believes us? What are we going to do? We would talk about that. It was so horrifying. (laughs) And so we made a pact that we would believe each other if that happened. Well, for Mary, she was facing her wedding being called off, and we know that Joseph was prepared to do that because it tells us that in Matthew. Mary was facing ridicule, gossip, her reputation being scarred forever. All her plans for a normal domestic life would have been over the minute she said, may it be done according to your word. And not only was she facing an impossible pregnancy, but what about the thought of parenting the Son of God? Now, we all think our kids are special, and they're, you know, ahead of the game and all of this, but that's nothing compared to what she may have been thinking about. And I guarantee she did not have the resources and the parenting books that we have today. How to Raise an Emotionally Healthy, Happy Messiah just wasn't written yet. What about Messiah-proofing your home? (laughs) Or Dobson wasn't around to write The Strong-Willed Messiah. I mean, that really would have been something that could have been on her mind, this task of how do I properly raise the Son of God? And then not just what she would endure, but what about what her son would endure? He would hear accusations about being an illegitimate child. He would be prohibited from many of the temple assemblies. He would be an outcast because of what because he was illegitimate. And if Joseph called off the wedding, he wouldn't even have an earthly father. All of these things and many more would have been racing through Mary's mind. If anyone had reason to push back on God's plan, 
I think it was Mary. You see, Mary began to suffer for the Messiah before he would suffer for her in very real ways. So how was Mary able to respond with these words, may it be according to your word? There's another young woman in our congregation who grew up here and was in our youth group and graduated from high school last year. Kendall decided that she would join with Youth with a Mission, YWAM, for this coming year and take a year off. She is going to be part of a team. She's over in Thailand now. She just left a week and a half ago. She's part of a team that is going to be helping with girls who are in sex trafficking. She knows a little bit of what she's going to do, but she certainly doesn't have all the details. And Kendall is someone who also said yes to God without knowing all the implications, but she trusted God. So how was Mary able to say, may it be according to your word? I think it's because she knew God. She knew the stories of other Jewish women in history who God protected, like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, all who are named in Jesus' genealogy in the book of Matthew. Mary did not just know that there was a God or some greater force out there. No, she knew God intimately, and we know that because of the words that she wrote in the very first Christmas song, The Magnificat. The word magnificat means to magnify. The first verse of this says, My soul magnifies the Lord. What happens when you have a magnifying glass? When you have a magnifying glass, you can hold it and you can see details that you have not seen before, that you would not see at just a glance, right? What Mary was doing was she was focusing intently on who God was in this beautiful song called Mary's Song. This first section says that Mary's expressing her emotions, which are pure joy, Then she mentions what God has done specifically for her and as an individual, and he's regarded her lowliness. He did great things for her and gave her an enduring reputation of blessedness, not shame. Third, she describes just the way God is in general, his general character. That accounts for how, why he has treated her the way he has. She rejoices and she magnifies or focuses closely on the Lord. Mary can say yes to what seems impossible because she knows God's character. She has a history with God. In focusing on who God is, she takes the focus off herself, off her weaknesses, and off the human improbability of what God has called her to do. She understands that nothing is impossible with God. She trusts God for all these unknown details, and there were many that lie ahead of her. So do you have, or have you had, an impossible situation? Something that only the intervention of the Holy Spirit could take care of. No human plan No human effort could do that. 
I've had a lot of impossible situations, like I know you have. One in particular that's come to my mind is when I married my husband, he was not a Christian. And I thought he was just going to come around. Kind of like what Peter says, I'll alter him. Yes, I thought I would alter him. I thought that after a few years, he would just kind of see who God was and he would, he would get it. He would desire that. It didn't happen. He was very supportive of me going to church, of the kids coming to church. He even came to church. But he didn't see any need for God in his life. He was a good person. What else would you need? Well, I did have one scenario, though, that I thought, okay, I know how God's going to do this because, you know, I always think ahead of God. I know how God's going to do this. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to get some terrible disease, and I'm going to die, and he's going to be left with these little kids to raise, and he's going to have to turn to God, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? There's no other way for that to happen. And then I'd get really mad, because it's like, why do I have to suffer and everybody else, because you're so darn stubborn? Well, clearly that didn't happen, because I'm here today. And when he did become a Christian, it was in a completely different way than I ever could have imagined. It was a real Holy Spirit movement in his life. What about is there something that you need to trust God for so that you can say, may it be according to your word? Do you need to step closer to God and see who he is? Using a magnifying glass, studying him, seeing his character, or do you just see him as a casual uh, person out there who is just kind of in charge of the universe, but there's not a lot of personal knowledge or relationship there? You know, it's really hard to trust somebody that you don't know. If you don't know God intimately, I don't see how you can trust him. I know that in my time with God, as I look back, each impossible, difficult situation that he has brought me through has helped me to trust him more. That's how we grow in our relationship. If I didn't have those experiences, I wouldn't have the relationship with God that I have now. When I'm feeling overwhelmed or hopeless, my go-to book in the Bible is the Psalms. They're like Mary's song in that they magnify the character of God. They talk about who he is, what he's capable of, what he's done, and what he will do. When I read the Psalms, they kind of talk me down, so to speak, so that I can remember what is true. And what is true is that with God, all things are possible. I read a quote from a woman who was talking about Mary It says, when I am called to answer yes to God, not knowing where this commitment will lead me, Mary gives me hope that it is enough to trust in God's grace and promise of salvation. It was enough for Mary. So we should look to Mary as an example of real faith. Faith that believes God can do the impossible no matter what it looks like to us, faith that we can have confidence in him to say yes, not confidence in ourselves. We can't do it. We're weak. 
but confidence in him to say yes to whatever he's calling us to either do or endure. You know, Mary, interestingly enough, raised a son who resembled her in profound ways. He obeyed God unflinchingly. He could accept both humiliation and honor. And as Mary had endured shame for the joy of being Jesus' mother, Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. Think about whatever is in your life today that you need to re-examine who God is and what he's capable of so that you can believe him and you can say yes to what he's calling you to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Mary as one of the many examples for us of real faith in your word. God, we thank you for your provision in her life and in our lives. And may we see you in a new way today. May we see you up close and personal so that we can trust you in all circumstances. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.